Hello, I am Martin Johnstone, and thank you for listening. I have been away for nine days, and I have learned so much about my inner voice that I come back to you knowing that the path that we're on together is worthwhile. And I invite you to continue to step forward with me towards 2024 and beyond. The most interesting part of the trip was being able to spend quality time with the person I love and really learn what it's like to communicate with somebody almost exclusively as opposed to in the intermittent way that we have to do when we're at a distance. And how the conversation ebbs and flows, touches different subjects along the way. But how, because we know each other so well and have known each other for so long, we're both our genuine selves, whether we're learning from each other, asking questions, or whether we're teaching each other things, or showing each other things or revealing new things to one another. And how I respond to her genuine self as she responds to mine at different times of the day. And ultimately how there was nothing but union and peace around being together We don't get to spend that much time together at the moment. And accomplishing goals together that perhaps we didn't realize that we had yet. For example, the knowledge that we could live there and we could be there and we could be together there. We could work there. We could play there. And how we could grow there if that was something that we needed to do. I think that the most important lesson that I came back with is that My brain betrays me. You see, I think one of the reasons why you continue to listen to me is because you probably relate to the idea that time is something we have to learn to use as a tool. We can't let it control us or define us. And that age 
is to our advantage. And my brain betrays me because it makes an attempt to subjugate or dilute the strength or the power of my experience, which is my data. You see, most people are going to be skeptical or critical or cynical when you offer them a new idea when you offer them details of an experience that they haven't had, that you have had. Walking around Amsterdam, I made the comment that they were in charge. I have been to Amsterdam before. I've worked in Amsterdam. I've had projects there. I mean, it was one of the countries I covered when I was an innovation director for Europe. But we worked together there, but she lived there. She had a life there. It's very different. It's very different. I count the Netherlands as a country that I've worked in. I don't count the Netherlands as a place that I've lived. She has lived there for five years or more made friends there outside of work and genuinely, genuinely got to know the place. Why would I argue with that? Why would I be pulling up Google Maps and saying it's better to go this way or better to go that way? Why wouldn't I allow their experience, their knowledge, their data be the thing that I believe in? Why do we ask people to prove things to us? Are they coming to us with something that they haven't knowledge in, that they haven't experienced? Do they signal to us that they don't know? If they do, then where is our capacity to love them to the point where we say, I will experience this with you together. We will be in union as we take our steps forward into the undiscovered country, into the future. Why are we constantly trying to explore alone? Do we have some fantasy about the last of the Mohicans? Because Hawkeye and Mogwai were inseparable. Why do we think that we can do things on our own, especially new things? And why do we think that the experience somebody else has is less important than our experiencing it ourselves? There's the old cliche. Would you jump off the Brooklyn Bridge if your friends did it? I always used to get into trouble because I'd say, well, I think I'd wait to see how they fared, how they did. You can look it up. There's a uh, story about a boy. He jumped off of Tower Bridge in London. Jumps off of Tower Bridge in London. Does he survive? Of course he does. Why did he do it? 
can't remember. It was on the BBC that I saw it. And I was really interested in the idea that he didn't do it in order to take his own life. He did it because he wanted to know if he would. Tragically, a boy 13 years old has recently plunged to his death from Tower Bridge. And on the 20th of April, 2021, it was a terrible shame that he had done this. What I'm saying is, that isn't that the kind of experience that tells us not to do it? Well, I hope so. Two men named Kevin Hines and Ken Baldwin talk about the fact that they survived jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. But what I'm talking about isn't tragedy. It's understanding the lessons that people are teaching us in the moment. Where is our capacity to listen? To really understand the lesson, the legacy that people leave us. Understand how tragedy teaches us. Equally, how celebration teaches us as well. How comedy teaches us as well. You see, my brain always asks for more data, more questions. My mind reminds my brain that we don't need any more data than our own experience. What we need, though, what we require and what we owe people that we're trying to communicate with is legitimate detail. Legitimate detail. So if I can present to you, don't I have to ask for enough time? Don't I have to ask for enough space, the right environment? in order to be able to share. And that has to match the environment in which you're willing to listen. Are you able to listen to all of this podcast episode now? Do you have to pause it and listen to some of it later? Are you listening in the car? Did you wait until you knew you had about half an hour? We don't eat, hopefully, unless we're able to actually digest and process the food. When I used to drink, I used to think to myself, I'm not thirsty, yet I'm still standing here pouring this dehydrating liquid down my throat. Maybe I want to get thirsty, would be the thing that I spent a lot of time contemplating while I stared at bottles of bourbon and rum that disappeared because I wanted them to.
somebody asked me recently if I was drinking a lot when I drank, and I said, no, it's that I drink off I drank often. Lots of opportunity to drink when you work for a telecommunications company because you're constantly meeting people from around the world who and they always say they want to get acquainted and you're constantly doing it over a drink. And then two. And then three. When you work at a beer company, forget it. It's almost like you have to drink. Whether you're sampling be whether you're sampling product because I was in the innovation department or whether you're being gifted beer from brand teams or whether you're doing competitive research or whether you're just simply out. I remember one night we were in Edinburgh, a group of senior managers. It was my birthday week. My boss had basically organized for us all to go up to Edinburgh and have a brand's portfolio meeting, innovation meeting, brand's team meeting. But then we also um, went to the beaches and did one of my favorite things, which is clean the beaches north of Edinburgh. Really amazing time. And he knew that I loved things like that. And it was definitely, definitely part of my birthday celebration that year. And the night before, we were in a bar and I, I wasn't drinking. Somebody asked me what I wanted to drink and I think I had a ginger ale or something. And somebody asked me if I was okay. And I said, well, you know, we got an early day tomorrow. And there was somebody there. I don't use people's names because I have respect for them. And, you know, I wouldn't want to... Uh, you know, take away their sense of privacy without sharing with them. But the point is, is that she was um, uh, a new, a newer member of the team, someone with less experience. And, 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 and I, and asked me, why didn't I drink? And I said, I just don't feel like it. And I'm not afraid of what they think of me. And they were all trying to get me to try this beer, this dooms bar, telling me how delicious it was. And then the next day, there was a Grolsch meeting, and the planner on Grolsch, a very intelligent man who I really respected, he asked me if I've ever been to Leith before, and I said, I, said I, I had... And he asked me um, if I wanted a beer because we were going outside to look at the the water. And I said, no, thanks. And he smiled and said, that's a relief. And we went outside and just talked about my innovation problem in the fresh air, but we did it without a beer. And it all has nothing to do with whether I wanted to drink or not. It has to do with the idea that I didn't need to drink. And I think that one beer, seven beers, two beers, you know, a couple of cocktails. I think for some people that's not drinking. For me, it's all drinking. And it's a choice that I don't do it. And the lesson that I pass on to people that I volunteer with, people who are struggling with addiction, they're medicating their own trauma responses, basically. Um, 
I can give you a more than enough detail that Gabor Mate is right that addiction is uh, is, is about medicating trauma responses and not a disease. It's interesting because I think about Dr. Susan Powder and I think about Stop the Madness and I think about the effect that it had on me years ago when I knew that one day I was going to have to quit both sugar and alcohol (laughs) and how she explained that because her father was addicted to sugar, she was addicted to sugar and her grandfather was addicted to sugar and her father was addicted to sugar because her grandfather was addicted to sugar. And now I realize that that's how they passed on their generational trauma as well. And that's how my family tried to pass on this generational trauma to me. And I bought it for a while and then I gave it up. And the lesson that I pass on is I say, listen, you might want more information. You might want more data. You might want more proof. But I'm the living proof right here, right now. How when I was drinking 2014, I ran 100 miles. 2015, I ran 200 miles. In 2016, I ran 250 miles. 250 miles. I did that in seven days. Seven days. You know, you're talking about, (laughs) you're talking about approximately 35 miles a day on my feet. And the secret, which I revealed in Amsterdam was you don't run 5Ks, you don't run 10s. You do your 50s when you're prepared for them, and you do them about three weeks or two weeks before you're about to do the big event. And you, yeah, you stop drinking, you overhydrate, you fuel, but you rest. That's the key. People, p- people ask me a lot about my health because, you know, last year I, I, I joined my partner on a very different type of meal choice. And, you know, what I learned was that some foods, they're so bad for me. And now people ask me about it. I said, well, the biggest problem I have is that my body changes shape every hour now when I eat, when I walk, when I exercise. And the lesson that I pass on is the same one I try to pass on to people struggling with addiction, struggling with their trauma responses, medicating their trauma responses. That their experience that they're having around their health, around their mental health, around their trauma responses, around their addiction that experience and that is what living this life is all about. It's about gaining this experience 
and recognizing how valuable it is, not only for us to experience it and go through the journey of our lives, but also when we are able to functionally understand our own experience, we create solid data that cannot be replicated. This is not generic stuff. This is specific to our lives and it is what convinces people. People love a good story. And when you're able to back up or include a good story with relevant and confident detail from your own experiences, that is all the data you need. One of the things that bothers me about sports is when you've got people who played the sport who don't talk about their experience in the sport. It really bothers me when I watch any sport and there's an ex-athlete there. The NFL does a pretty good job of it. But other sports, you really do get less color from these sports, from these ex-athletes saying, I was in this position. I was in this situation. I remember what happened to me when I was in this situation. Maybe we can have some compassion or some understanding or some empathy for the athlete on the field. Karen Carney does a good, does a, does a good job of telling us how the players feel in the situations that they're in when she talks about her sport. And it's really interesting because I remember her, I used to watch her play practice games at the University of Birmingham when she played for Birmingham before she went to Chelsea. And the thing is that you could tell she was the best on the, t- on the field. But I used to run on that track every day. And some days she'd be playing with five. And sometimes she'd be playing with 11 on 11. And some days she'd be playing with her own team against another team. I once watched them beat Reading's under-23 academy or play, beat them on a Sunday afternoon. And I'm just doing laps around this track. And one of the coaches said to me, he said, well, what do you do here every day? I said, oh, I just do 35 laps a day minimum. And he said, why do you do that? I said, because I want to learn how to run. I said, isn't that why you make them play every day so they can learn how to play football, soccer? And he said, don't they know how to play? And I said, no. We never stop learning the nuances of our chosen passion. That's the whole point of it being a passion. Turning that on its head, the obverse of that is we never stop learning about our own addictions. We never stop learning about our own journeys our own tragedies, our own situation, our own trauma. If we pay attention, if we're listening, when are we in the environment to listen to other people? When are you in the environment to listen to me? When are you in the environment to listen to yourself? I'll ask that question again because this is very important. This is why my mind and my brain do not get along because my mind spends a lot of time reminding my brain we've all 
already done this. Let's listen to ourselves and gather the data required. My confidence comes from the idea that at 53 years old, you could strap me in to a training program right now and I would probably defy it and still accomplish the goals that I want to accomplish. Somebody asked me over the weekend what kind of exercise I like to do now. I do this weird kind of um, hiking, which is I do about a marathon distance, but then among there's a lot of stairs and a lot of hills and a lot of climbing and a lot of pyometrics associated with it. And then for, you know, just for strength, I do what I would, what I would call own body strength training. Um, but the issue is that I don't need to run anymore because I know more about running now than I ever did because of the amount of running that I did. But it wasn't while I was running that I could listen to myself enough. When I was running, I was convinced I needed to run more. When I stopped running, and my health journey demanded that I stopped running, all of a sudden I found a peaceful place to listen to myself and begin to believe in myself more because why I was listening to myself in the right environment, which meant that I was understanding my own experience. I'll ask you again, when do you listen to yourself? Under what circumstances are you learning from yourself? Under what circumstances are you giving voice to the experience that you have? And how are you forming that experience into knowledge and data that you can use to support your arguments, but also pass on to other people? You tell somebody. Are you listening to yourself deeply enough to understand why or what is happening? My mind betrays me because it knows my brain has a library of memories in it. It knows that I can access so much information. It's not instantaneous all the time. Some days I forget words. Other days I can remember whole scenes from movies, data from annual reports and financial news broadcasts that I've seen, articles that I've read, Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, what? It doesn't make a difference. Most of what I read, I remember. And it's not what I would call anything other than a choice, because I know that that is one of the ways I believe that I'm intelligent, that I have a great memory. And there is no way that I'm not aware of the fact that my mind betrays me because what it does 
is it challenges my memory. I heard something the other day. It reminded me that memory can change the color of a car or the shape of a room. Yeah, guess what? Memory can also decide who the hero is and the villain is. Memory can also mean that you're discarding experience because you're almost lost in a forest of too many choices. But your own experience is the strongest one. And I really believe that memory is a choice. (sighs) But we can talk about that next week. This week I would like to say that people think that they need reams of information. That data has to come from sources that we can cite. And it has to be reportable and checkable. Well, while I believe in facts, and while I believe in the power of statistics and numbers, I don't think that they teach us anything. I think that the best form of data, the best form of information, the best way for you to be able to present your case to somebody, no matter what it is, is out of your own experience. People think that personal experience is not enough to offer as data in an argument or in a case study or in your life. Well, my name is Martin Johnstone and I disagree.